have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be in verse 25 and following. I think you probably have picked up on sort of the central themes of this series, the subversive agenda of Jesus Christ. What Jesus was trying to subvert is not governments. Jesus is not trying to uh, take over the world in terms of political power or military power. He desired through the kingdom of God to take over the world by changing the habits and the patterns that lived in the lives of everyday people. By using his power, the power that was displayed through his cross, his, his death and his resurrection, to come into the lives of people and to allow them to be changed in the way that they interact with both God and man. Years ago, I was in my first year of seminary, and I was taking an entire quarter class on how to lead and engage in small groups. I know you wonder, how could you have a class that lasted for a full quarter on that? The truth is, there shouldn't have been a class that lasted for a full quarter on that. But, went to this class anyways, and, and the professor was very engaging. He was a pastor from up in Cleveland. And he said, you know what? I love when my small groups are service small groups. And I said, what is that? And in my mind, of course, I was quiet in class. But he said, what's, what, what's a service small group? And, and so he begins to describe me. He says, well, you know, we have small groups that are based in Bible study. And we have small groups that are based in doing books. And we have small groups that are based in prayer. But he said, we really need also small groups who just, they get together and their goal is to do service and to do outreach and just to reach people for Jesus. A small group for that. And I thought, that is brilliant. That makes a lot of sense. And so I took that back with me, and I came back to him a few weeks later. I said, so do you actually have any of these groups at your church? And he says, a few. He said, but what I really try to do is I try to get each small group, if they're not going to be service-oriented, at least to, by the end of the small group session, to have done some service or some outreach. I thought, now that's practical. We can roll with that. So I came back, and at that time I was working with young adults, and I had a number of different young adults who were leading small groups for me. And so we would meet every time they'd want to do a small group. I'd want to make sure that they were an appropriate leader and they'd gone through our small group training. And I said, what I'd really like you to end with is to make sure the entire time, whether it's 8 or 10 or 15 weeks that your small group is meeting, that you end with an outreach or a service project. So they would get into their small group, and they would get into their, 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 the weeks, and about week four, I would always talk to them, hey, how's the group going? What's going on? Have you made any progress on the outreach or the service project? Uh, no, no, but we're thinking about it. And then we'd get to about week seven or eight, and I'd say, hey, what are you guys going to end with? What's going to be your big deal? What are you, how are you going to serve or reach out for Jesus? Uh, well, we really didn't come up with anything. And this happened over and over and over again throughout the life of ministry in young adult ministry. And I would mention, we need to end with a service project, or we need to end with an outreach. And rarely did we ever accomplish that. Some groups did, some groups didn't. And it got me to thinking, you know what, we in the church can be a, a little bit on the heavy on theology and Bible side, and a little bit light on the let's actually do something about it side. We can be a little heavy on Let's talk about it, but, and let's say all the right words, but when it really comes, push comes to shove, are we really doing that which we have been called to do? Jesus was 
confronted with people like this all the time. He was preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, and they were people who truly understood the theology of it all. They truly understood the Bible. They knew the word. They prayed. They did things to show their devotion to God. They were very heavy on theology, but they were very light on action. And I want to share a story with you today, and I want to begin to ask this question of ourselves. Are we heavy on the theology but light on the action? Because one of the things that Jesus was, wanted to subvert was this concept of if I know, then I'm good, rather than if I do, then I'm good. So let's look in our Bibles here at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. Just then, it says, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've given the right answer. Do this, and you'll live. Verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let's just stop there before we go any further. All right, so we have this interesting uh, interplay going on. We have a lawyer, someone who's very versed in the Old Testament. In this time in history, a lawyer was not somebody necessarily that stood in a courtroom. A lawyer in Israel was someone who knew the law extremely well and worked in the, in the Mosaic law and the law of the people of Israel. And he asked a question of Jesus. He says, Jesus, what is it that earns me eternal life? And it says he stood up to test Jesus. In essence, he wasn't really a true believer in Jesus necessarily, but he wanted to know what Jesus had to say. He might have even wanted to trap Jesus a little bit into saying something that was a little bit out there. One of the things about the Bible is when you exit the Old Testament, you sort of are wondering what happens to people after they die. You're not quite sure. Well, by the time Jesus' day came around, the Old Testament, the last book had been written 400 years earlier, people were having these debates about eternal life and what makes you right with God for eternity. What is it so that when you die, you can be in the presence of God as opposed to being in a place where the presence of God is not? In essence, what makes you cool with God, Jesus? What makes you right with God to the point that when you die, you get to hang out with God where God is? And Jesus, instead of just giving him some sort of pat answer here, says, well, what are you reading the law, lawyer? What do you think? Go ahead and tell me. And what the lawyer says is remarkable. In fact, it's right. He does a great job. He goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Make sure your relationship this way is right between you and God. Make sure your relationship this way between you and your peers is right. That's the, that sums up all the Old Testament. That's it. And what does Jesus say? Wow. Jesus said, good. Nice answer. Way to go. He gives him a little, he gives him a, a little bit of encouragement. Hey, good answer. He says, do this. And you'll live. You'll live. Do this and you'll live. He doesn't say eternal life. He says, do this and you'll live. But the story doesn't stop there. The man asks one more question. It says the intent of the man was to justify himself. To justify means to declare righteous. 
He wanted to declare himself a righteous person. He wanted to make sure that he was making himself right with God. That's what he wanted to make sure. And so what did he do? He says, all right, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Now, that's incredible to me. It's incredible on two fronts. One, that means that he thinks he has the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength thing down. That means that this guy thought, yep, I am perfectly cool with God. Now I just need to make sure that I'm perfectly cool with the people around me. Whoo! His question was not about how to love God more or serve God better. His question now was, okay, how do I deal with these people around me to make sure that I'm cool with God? He thinks he's got number one figured out. And then he says, who's my neighbor? Now, what does he mean by that? Why is he asking? Well, he wants to justify himself. He wants to make sure he's right. But by asking, who's my neighbor, he's really asking, who don't I have to love but still can be right with God? Isn't that the question that he's asking when it really gets down to it? Who don't I have to love but can still be cool with God? And Jesus does something remarkable. He's about to do three things in a parable to completely delegitimize that question. Let's look back down in our Bibles. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, and having poured on oil and wine, he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. End of story. Jesus looks to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus delegitimizes the question completely, and he does it in three different ways. First, the man asks, who's my neighbor? Who can I get away with without loving? So how does Jesus start the story? He says, a certain man. Yeah, that's descriptive. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say a Pharisee. He doesn't say a scribe. He doesn't say a lawyer. He doesn't say a Levite or a Benjamite or, a, or someone of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't say a Roman or a Greek. He doesn't say an Ethiopian. He doesn't say a Samaritan. He just says somebody, a certain man. Now, Jesus picked his words very carefully. So I imagine that he did this on purpose. Let's not talk about who the guy is because I'm going to delegitimize your question here. Second, he shows in this story a lack of care by the people who thought themselves very religious. People who thought that they were cool with God, that they were right with God. Now, some people, some commentators have said, well, this Levite and this priest, if they would have touched this man, would have become ceremonially unclean and then they couldn't have gone back into the temple. That might be true, but it says that they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho, not the other way. So maybe they were using an excuse in their minds, I can't touch that bloody beaten man, I'll make myself ceremonial and clean, then I can't go back up to the temple. But they weren't headed to the temple. 
They were headed in the other direction, headed to the southeast. So we can't really go there, but what it really does show is whoever this man was, the people who really thought they were cool with God, the people who thought that they were righteous, passed by on the other side. Even the people who really knew the Bible extremely well passed by on the other side. And then the third thing Jesus does to completely delegitimize the question of who is my neighbor, he makes the hero a Samaritan. Now, for Jewish people of that day, Samaritans who lived in the very center of their country were considered half-breeds and heretics. They weren't full-blooded Jews because they had intermarried with some of the people who had repopulated the land of Israel at certain times in their history. And they didn't or they didn't worship the way the true Jews did. In fact, they worshiped on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. They didn't worship at the temple. They didn't follow all the customs of the Jews. They even had their own version of the Bible. They were heretics in the eyes of the lawyer and anybody else who would have been listening to Jesus that day. They would have been considered loonies, and they would have been considered people who you didn't want to go around or be around because of that. The lawyer in this story could have enumerated, he could have told you all the heresies, all the issues with the Samaritans, and all the things that were wrong with them. He could have, because he was a lawyer. He could have enumerated them all. So to make the hero in the story a Samaritan could have been probably the most repugnant thing that Jesus could have done in this parable. Do you get the sense that Jesus didn't appreciate the question? Do you get the sense that perhaps he thought this question was a little bit out there in terms of really wanting to please God? Because he does things within the story to make the question seem really, really foolish. In essence, he's looking at this lawyer and he's saying, stop theologizing and categorizing and systematizing your relationship to God and man. Just do good as the opportunity to do good is presented to you. Stop theologizing and just do something. Let God worry about justifying you. Let God worry about making sure you're right with him. And wasn't that what the ministry of Jesus was all about? Was saying to human beings, you can't justify yourself. You can't ever do enough to make God pleased with your actions so that you'll be right with him and that you'll have eternal life. But guess what? God loves you enough that he'll do it for you. He'll justify you. That, that, that's the Christian understanding. So Jesus really doesn't respond even to the question of what will grant me eternal life. He's really trying to say, listen, guy, there's a heart issue here. There's a, there's a problem with the questions that you're asking. Even the question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, sort of denotes the idea of what don't I have to do? What is, the, what is the basic requirements to make sure that when I die, I get to be in the presence of God? What are the requirements? We sometimes do this within Christianity. We ask the very same thing. Instead of maybe love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself as, a, as a something that we speak, because that's really what this guy was about. He was about knowing the right answer to get him eternal life, not doing the right thing to gain him eternal life. But we do the very same thing in ways. We say things like, pray this sinner's prayer, right? And we pray with people, and they admit that they're a sinner and that they need Jesus in their life. And they say something like, Jesus, I want to serve you the rest of my days, and I'm going to 
honor you and my life is given to you. But then if there's absolutely no change, have they really been somebody who's accepted the requirements for eternal life? And I'm not trying to say that there are requirements. Jesus is delegitimizing that question. Certainly, God has something in his mind that makes us saved. And the Bible tells us by the Holy Spirit living inside of us and changing us, we have proof of our salvation. Don't ever doubt it. But with that said, the question of what are the minimum requirements to be cool with God, that's a question that Jesus has a problem with. What are the minimum requirements to be cool with God? What do I have to do to make heaven? So Jesus does something in this story to this man and completely delegitimizes the question. And I want to say that there are three things that we can take from this story today that right in our lives we can stop. And I think there's also three things in our lives today just by looking at the story, that this story would compel us to start. So if you're of the younger generation, perhaps you're normally in young disciples at this time, grab a pen and an envelope in front of you. I want you to write down the three things that you're supposed to stop and the three things that you're supposed to start. I did this about a year ago, and I'm doing it again today. If you can tell your parents or your guardian the three things that you're supposed to stop or the three things that you're supposed to start by the end of this sermon, they're going to take you for ice cream this week. (laughs) I'm only going to do that once a year, parents, but it was about a year ago. So make sure you get these six things, three things to stop and three things to start, and ice cream is yours. Adults, look at your spouse and say, if I write all these, will you take me for ice cream? All right? That's fine. Okay? But incentives are fine. We're going to roll with this. All right. First thing to stop, according to this story. Stop putting people into categories. Jesus was destroying categories with this story. The New Testament was all about destroying categories. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. The New Testament was all about that. In fact, Romans despised the early Christians. One of the reasons that Romans didn't like the early Christians is because of the, I'm not going to use that big word, because of the love that was being shown between, between slaves and people who were free. They didn't like that they were eating together and sharing together and, and worshiping together. You see, Stop putting people into categories. Jesus was all about breaking down categories. The other day, I was in a store, and I was shopping, and I had my cart, and a man came up to me, and he says, you're, you're Pastor Matt, right? I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm Pastor Matt, and he, he told me through some acquaintances how he knew who I was. And he began to talk to me, and he began to speak in some amazing Christianese. I mean, he was speaking the language of church people talking about Jesus and talking about God and talking about all these different things. And as he was talking about these things, I thought, he's only talking to me that way because I'm a pastor. If I was his buddy, he would never speak this way. But that was not the issue for me. The issue that later caused me so much hurt in my own spirit was that I looked at this man and the disheveled state of his clothes And this man reeked of the two substances that held him captive, or at least two of the substances that held him captive. And he was not really operating at full efficiency in terms of his mind. And as we ended the conversation, he said a couple of things. He says, so I'd really like you to pray for me because I really need a job. And one of these days, you know, I'm going to come and I'm going to attend your church. 
And you know what I thought in my, in my mind? I thought, no, you're not. You're not going to be there. But I will pray for you. I said, all right, well, it was a pleasure to meet you. And I let him go. What a Levite I am. What a priest. Why did I not stop right in that moment and say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you right now about that job. And that's not all I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray that God delivers you from the things that I know you're into. Do I believe the word that I preach or not? I can't tell you how convicted I was when I left that store. I was embarrassed to call myself a Christian, not just a pastor, but a Christian. That because of the categories that I placed this man into, because of the, of the reasoning of my mind, that I would dehumanize him that way and not see him as a child of God. I felt despicable. And I want to tell you, I was despicable because I wasn't living out the mercy that God has called me to live because I was busy categorizing this guy. I'm not going to make that mistake again because I've been convicted, I repented of it, and the Bible tells me that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not going to weep before you today because of what happened, but I am going to say that I was convicted and I repented and it's going to be right next time that I get that opportunity. Matt the Levite or Matt the Christ follower, that's what I had to ask in that moment. And we see people every day who are lonely and who are unlike us. And God in his heaven is saying, that's my child. And we in our humanity are saying, they're not like me. They're not like me. They're in a category that I dismiss. They're in a category that I dismiss. And you know what was even more shocking? I thought, if this man would have stepped into this building, how I would have ministered to him, as opposed to when I'm just out being me. That's the most terrible part of all this. That if he came in here, we'd lay hands on him and anoint him with oil, and we'd call, what it, call it for what it was. But out in the store, when I was just Matt the Christian, we can play a pretty good game when we convince ourselves that people are in a category and they're not like us. And this is what we do with people. Even if they're people that just don't share our same hobbies. Guys do this. Well, he's a car guy and I'm a sports guy, so I'm going to go hang with the sports guys and the car guys can hang together. We put people in these kind of categories all the time. Well, she's that type of girl and I'm this type of girl, so I see her in church and I smile, but then I get by. Well, they're that type of person at work, and I'm this type of person at work. I can't have anything to do with them because they're in my category. And what we really do by categorizing people is we determine in our minds who is worthy of our time and help and who is not. And because of the categories that were in the minds of the Levite and the priest that day, they had determined who was not worthy of their time. Even a man who, had, who was just lying there dying was not worthy of their time because of other categories that had nothing to do with the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And we do this every day. We pass by people because we categorize them. We put them in these categories. We think they're unclean, they're uncool, or they're unprofitable. For those of you who are in school today, 
whether you're in first grade or 11th grade, don't ignore people because you think they're uncool. Don't ignore people because you think, well, they're different than me. That's not Christian. That's not Jesus. Jesus has us look at people through his eyes and say, that's a child of God. I'm not going to ignore them. And when I say people are unclean, I don't mean that they smell bad. I say we put people in categories and call them unclean because they don't fit into the little box that we live in. So if they don't fit into the box that we live in, we dismiss them. The New Testament tells us don't ignore people because they don't fit in your box. Don't ignore people because you don't feel like they can add anything to you. Jesus said in another place, if you love only those who love you, what profit is that to you? And if you greet only those who greet you, who are your friends, what profit is that to you? Even the sinners do that. We're supposed to be different. Stop putting people into categories. Number two, stop overestimating your righteousness. I wonder how Jesus felt before he told this story. Some people see Jesus as angry and sarcastic all the time. You know, oh, this stupid lawyer, I got to tell him a story to fix him. Or perhaps Jesus was thinking, oh man, this guy needs some help. I think I'm going to tell a story. I don't know how Jesus responded to this guy. I know what he said. I don't know where he was at. I don't know if he was frustrated or if he was like, wow, what a great opportunity to teach. I like to think that Jesus was looking at this as a great opportunity to teach this guy something. That he wasn't just despising him for his answer and this illegitimate question. But number two, we have to stop overestimating our righteousness. Overestimating ourselves allows us to ignore needs of others. I've got bigger fish to fry, so I can't help. I'm going into the church to do this thing on Sunday, and that's going to take all my energy, so I certainly can't help that person on Saturday. I've got big-time ministry on Sunday. I've got important ministry on Wednesday. Therefore, because I'm a righteous person and do those type of ministries, I can't help anybody other than those times. The unrighteous, people who think they're righteous but are truly unrighteous, as we've talked about in this series already, are the people who are always looking to do just enough. I've done enough. And I imagine because of the religious obligations of the Levite and the priest, they thought, you know what, I've done enough. I, uh, stop overestimating your righteousness. You are a sinner too. I am a sinner too. You know what I thought as I left that man at the store and God convicted my heart? I thought that man very much could have looked at me and could have just thought, what a pompous, know-it-all jerk. He could have categorized me the same way I had categorized him. Right? And it wasn't even that I had a problem necessarily with this man and his actions. I deal with people who are involved in all types of sin, and I'm a sinner too. It wasn't even a a, a level of he's bad and I'm good so much as it was I know better because I've been around the block and I'll never see this guy again. But that's a self-righteous attitude in and of itself. Self-righteous people think they know the reasons that people have got themselves in that predicament. Self-righteous people think they know why people do the things that they do. 
Self-righteous people are always convinced that they get it and other people don't. This lawyer's eternal life was not hinging on his deeds. It was hinging on his heart. So when Jesus says, go and do likewise, what was he really saying? Go and find dying people on the side of the road and do something about it? No. He was saying, listen, your heart's not in the right place. Let me break down the way you view the world, and then I can begin to use you. And our hearts have to be in the right place. We have to stop overestimating our self-righteousness and our knowledge because it allows us to dismiss people in the name of other ministries. It allows us to dismiss people in the name of I know better. And I want to tell you today, you can go to all the church services, all the prayer meetings, all the Bible studies, all the Christian concerts you want. You can have Bible studies on the walls of your home. You can have Bible, or Bible verses on the, on, on the windshield of your car. You can even post Bible verses on your homepage. But you can still be a really cruddy person. Unless you're ready to show mercy the way God wants you to show mercy. Third thing to stop. Stop seeing people as an obligation. Stop seeing people as an obligation. Oh, I just don't want to talk today. That's, I can't talk. Oh, I just can't help them today. I just, I've, I've, uh, my health tank is empty. Oh, I just can't deal with that person today. That's just a person that I can't deal with. Oh, I just can't go one more place and help one more person. It's just an obligation. Oh, I'm going to go because it looks good and people expect me to be there, but I'm not going because I love that person or want to show love. I just am going to keep my own reputation intact. That seeing people is an obligation rather than who we should be. Who we should be. Three things to start. One, start seeing people as an opportunity. We're going to go inverse now, okay? We're going to take one, two, and three and go three, two, one. Stop seeing people as an, start seeing people as an opportunity. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's not see people as an obligation. Let's see people as an opportunity. Oh, there's some new couple in the church and they're moving. I don't really know them, so hopefully their friends will help them move. But don't we think things like that? Oh, I'm being greeted by somebody in the store, and they're connected to so-and-so, and they're connected to so-and-so. And all I really want to do is get my chocolate milk and go home. But maybe God's arranged that for that day. Maybe God's giving you an opportunity to minister for him. But we're missing it. And if you're sitting here thinking, let me, put, let me really couch this, I've got to be careful. If you're sitting here today thinking, I wish somebody would notice me. I wish somebody would talk to me. I wish somebody would minister to me. Flip that script. No, do you know Jesus? If you do, go minister to somebody. Go talk to somebody. Go notice somebody. 
Are you healed and saved and set free, or are you just going to be, woe is me? So I want to tell you today, if you know Jesus and you say he's my Lord and Savior, stop living in woe is me zone and start seeing people as an opportunity. Go have awkward conversations. I hate awkward conversations, but the Lord is dealing with me on that. Go have them. You know when you really don't know what to say to the person, but you know that they're standing there and you should say something. Do it. Don't ignore them. Go have that awkward conversation because conversation number two, it's less awkward. And conversation number three, less awkward still. Conversation number four, your acquaintances. Conversation number five, you might even be friends. Don't be introverted. Don't be this Christian who is just looking for people to notice you or only greeting your friends or only loving your friends or only giving to those who can give in return. Jesus was trying to subvert all of that. And he's trying to say, don't look at people as an obligation. Look at people as an opportunity. Jesus hung out with some pretty self-righteous, pompous jerks. And he hung out with some pretty dirty, despicable sinners. And he hung out with people everywhere in between because he saw people as an opportunity. And I'm afraid that you and I need to start reading this Bible as if we are the Pharisees and the lawyers if we really want to be changed. If we really want to be the people Jesus wants us to be, we who have been in church our whole lives or for 10 years or for 20 years, we need to start reading the Bible as if we're the lawyer and the Pharisee not the man beaten on the side of the road. We need to start reading like Jesus is speaking to us and wants our heart to change. He wants our heart to change. It wasn't about knowing the right thing. It was about this guy's heart, and Jesus was trying to grab hold of it, and he's trying to grab hold of my heart today, and he's trying to grab a hold of your heart today and say stop in these habits that view people as an obligation and begin to view people as an opportunity. You know what? I know that there's some times in life where you just got to run, and it's okay to tell somebody that once in a while. But if your whole life is, ah, I'd love to talk, but I just got to run, you're missing it because you don't have to run every single time. You're running because it's what's comfortable. You're not risking anything for the kingdom of God. Number two, things to start. Start believing your dearest held theology. What is it? I'm not righteous, but God is. I'm a sinner, but God is. Or God is not. I... I mess up, but God doesn't. Because if you really have your heart in that mindset, you won't be categorizing people. You won't be looking at them in the way that God would not have you look at them. You wouldn't be looking at them as someone that you're not to come near and you need to just get away from. But you'd start believing that you need to move in to their lives. Because that's righteousness. Jesus knew we weren't righteous, and he knew we weren't right, so he moved into our lives to try to bring us a sense of righteousness and goodness and hope. And we as Christ followers need to be people who see the unrighteousness and the lack of 
healthy living around us, and we need to take the righteousness that Jesus has imparted to us, and we need to move into the lives of people and try to bring righteousness and goodness and hope. Rather than just to worry about whether or not we've done enough to make heaven. But see ourselves as sinners, and we need to see ourselves as people who move in and try to bring people salvation. Number three, start seeing people as God sees them. Start being people as God sees them, or start seeing people as God sees them. There are times that we deal with people who are acting in very unlovable ways. They're acting in ways that are just ridiculous. They're hurting themselves and others for the 90th time. And in those moments, it's okay to pray in your spirit, God, I know they're your child. Help me to see them the way you see them. God, I know they're your child. Help me to see them the way you see them. Help me. Help me. Help me. All I want to do is scream at them for the way they're behaving. But I want to see them as you see them. All I want to do is get away from them because of the way that they're behaving. Help me to see them as you see them. You see, you can't do any of this on your own, and that's the problem that this man had. He wanted to justify himself. He was interested in doing life on his own, and you can't. You can't become the person Jesus you desi- designed you to be unless you submit your life to Jesus, unless you surrender to him in prayer and say, Jesus, change my heart. Change the way I see people. Change the way I act. Help me. Help me. See, human beings forever have been trying to find propriety in the right way to deal with one another, and we've never figured it out. And we always end up putting people into categories. We always end up seeing as people outside our circle as an obligation. We always end up impressed with our own level of righteousness and needing to put others down for their level, their level of unrighteousness. We always end up in the same place when we want to do it on our own. But when we surrender our lives to Jesus, he can change the way we see. He can change the way we hear. He can change the way we process. And he can take our hard hearts and make them soft again. That's what Jesus wants for me. That's what he wants for you. Because we have an obligation, folks, and it's to change this world. We have an obligation, and it's to live differently than everybody else around us. And he doesn't want you to just be stuck going to church and singing worship choruses, but not doing anything else that would affect people for the kingdom of God. He's got to have your heart first. See, this man in this story, he was heavy on theology. He was light on action. He was light on action because he knew all the right answers, but his heart wasn't in the right place. Our hearts need to be right before God. So the questions I want you to ask yourself as we pray in just a moment Who do you pass by because you prayed the sinner's prayer but forgot you're a sinner? Who do you ignore because they're not like you? Who do you dismiss because your friends, your friendship with them would be work? 
Who could you include that you normally ignore? Who could you invite who's just waiting for an invitation? Who could you help heal rather than further opening the wound? That's the question that the Christian asks themselves and ask God to supply the answer. Will you bow your heads with me? We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, I know this is not an easy message today, but Lord, you were deadly serious about the way you wanted to change us. You desired to remake us so much that you were willing to die for it. And God, I, I, I hope and I pray that though these words have been tough today, that everybody here knows that they are words for myself and the leadership of this church as well. We don't have this all figured out. We're sinners. We categorize people. We can be harsh. We can be self-righteous. We can be people who ignore others. But Lord, I pray that you would do a work in each one of our hearts today. Not because we're desiring for people to see us look righteous, but because we desire to change the world for the kingdom of God by displaying Christ's mercy in the lives of those around us. God, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to respond to you today. Lord, may we not dismiss that opportunity, but may we approach it with boldness. I'm just going to ask the elders to come today, the ones who are present. I'm just going to ask them to stand, one to my right, one to my left. I'm going to ask Tom if you'd dim the lights for us because I want this moment to just be between you and between God and sometimes when the lights are full up it's tough to focus but if the Lord is speaking to your heart today about where you're at here and you say I've been operating in the same way for a long long time Pastor Matt I, I don't think I'm a jerk I don't think I'm a harsh or a mean person but God's spoken to me today. And I need to commit some things to him. And I want to honor him with my life. And I want to treat people the way that they're to be treated. And I'm serious about this today. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and make a move towards God today. To kneel on this altar and say, God, I'm going to be serious. I want heart change the way that I interact with people and these elders and myself we'd love to pray with you and you say I can't respond to this altar call what would people think of me let me be the first respondee I tell you today we're not about show we're not about people coming up here so that the pastor can feel like he preached a good sermon but we are about meeting with God in this place and saying, God, I'm deadly serious about what I want you to do in my life. So if that's you today, I'm just going to pray. And as I pray, I want you to come.
you be bold for God in this moment. He wants your heart. He wants to know you want to move towards him. Will you bow your heads with me once more? And if you're ready to come, you come. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would deal with us today. I pray that we would change the way that we interact. I pray that we would change the way that we view people. And I pray that you would do this in us. I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who are serious about your kingdom. Not just the stuff that surrounds it, the church and the music and the ministries, but to see people, to see people for who they are and what they need. And Lord, we pray to you today because you've spoken to our hearts and we just want to move towards you and kneel or stand before you because we want to tell you we're deadly serious about what you're speaking and what you've spoken. God, as we pray today, I pray that you would touch our hearts, convict us where we need convicted, Pray that you would encourage us where we need encouraged. And remind us, Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you remain in your seats today, I ask you to stay in a place of reverent prayer. The Lord can speak to you in this moment. Just ask those questions, Lord. Who, who am I to minister to? We're just going to pray in the altars for a few minutes, and AJ's going to sing.